The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Welcome back to the reopening series. You know, our goal for the show all along and for the series has been to empower ourselves, you and me, empower us to resume control of our careers, to own our ambition, to envision a better future. And so for our fourth episode, we are taking on habits. When quarantine arrived, I had to change all my habits at once. It's not like I thought out my approach. Like so many people, I was just trying to get by. It took months for me to realize I'd actually developed new habits. Some I loved, some I didn't. Like, for example, having a glass of wine every single day or two. So now it's time to take inventory of how we do things and decide what stays and what goes. And again, I have got the perfect person to advise us. Nirayal wrote a best-selling book about making habits. It was called Hooked. And then he wrote another one about breaking habits called Indistractable. In this episode, Nir offers his theory on time management. He'll encourage us to take ownership of our attention because, yes, he believes that that is something we can do. And he'll give us four things to do right now to help us choose our habits rather than falling into them. To kick us off, I asked Nir to clarify, what is a habit exactly? Here's Nir. Great first question. It's one that people gloss over because we think we understand what a habit is, but it does have a very specific definition. And that is an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. So a habit is not the same thing as an addiction. Addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on behavior or substance that harms the user. They are not the same thing. Habits, unlike addictions, can be good or bad. Right? So we have good habits as well as bad habits, but it's nothing more than an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And studies find that it's about 40% of what you do a day in and day out is done purely out of habit. It's amazing how much before the quarantine I had just programmed into my life without ever thinking it. I'll give you an example of the commute. Like I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you the steps that I took to get to my office. I couldn't tell you the businesses I passed. I couldn't tell you the moment that I swiped my Metro card. I live in the greater New York City area. I go to work in the Metro. I just did it. It was just programmed into me. Huge Mm -hmm. cognitive load to shake that all up at once. What was that like for you personally? Anytime that there's a, a big change in our life, that's when our habit deck gets reshuffled. And so we see this whenever people have major life changes, whether it's a big move or having a baby, or in our case, when it's going through the pandemic and all these things that we could do one day, now we can't do anymore. Oh, we're not allowed to shake hands. We have to wear masks. We have to do all these things that we didn't have to do before. That changes our habits profoundly because now we have all these other things that we all of a sudden we have to start thinking about, <laughs> whereas before they were all on autopilot. With my family, we, we actually moved to Singapore in early 2020. Uh, so we didn't have the, the experience that we would have had that you had in New York City, we had a a different experience. One of the things that was most startling, we came here in early March. And uh, in America, we were being told not to wear masks by the CDC and the WHO. And when we got to Asia, everybody was wearing masks like it was it was just such a a, a black and white, big, big, big difference. (laughs) And uh, to see that was pretty startling. And, And speaking of like how that does become part of your your habits, part of your routines now, 
you know, every time I leave the house, uh, I'm still in Singapore. And now here there are mask mandates. Uh, now it has become a habit. I, I feel strange without one in public. What a weird pairing to start with a change of habits that you, you opt into, a big move, and then a, a set of habits that you don't opt into, you're thrown into, which is dealing with the quarantine and having them mm-hmm. happen on top of each other. That's right. I think many folks found that there was an opportunity that, that now that things had been so shaken up that we have to kind of reassess and say, wait a minute, are these habits just things we accept? You know, is the commute really necessary? <laughs> is, uh, is the lifestyle that I used to have something that is fixed? Or wait a minute, I actually have a lot more control to change my daily behaviors than maybe I appreciated before. So a lot of what I really love about your work here is that it's so um, it's so practical. Do you have a really different mm. take on the whole philosophy around what we can do to fix our habits. So I wonder if you want to spell that out for us. Sure. Well, I got to tell you, that is like catnip for me (laughs) (laughs) because that is exactly what I meant to do as an author. So I think most authors write a book because they know something. I write a book because I want to know something. So the vehicle for me to learn about a topic is writing this book. And it takes me about five years to write a book. So I wrote a book about habits, about how to build habit forming products, and then how to break bad habits with my second book, Indistractable, which is all about the psychology of distraction, because I was the most distracted person you've ever met, right? Like I was having this problem in my own life. So the kind of nonfiction books that I like to read are not only practical and that you can use the advice in them, but they're also generalizable. So I hate it when I read a pop psychology book uh, or a, a biography that somebody's written and says, you know, this is the advice that worked for me. It's going to work for you. Well, I, I want to see the studies. Right? <laughs> like, it's not good enough for me to just take your word on it. It has to not only be backed by good research. And so there's 30 pages of citations in the back of my book, but I wanted to make it super, super practical. So I use everything's in these in these books. And I only write on these topics when I've read other books on the topic. And I find that there's still something missing, right? Nine times out of 10, Somebody's written a great book on the topic and I'm done. But every once in a while, maybe once every five years or so, there's a a problem in my life. In my case, it was this problem of distraction and bad habits. And uh, I read all the books on the topic. And many of the books, when it came to this topic of distraction, they all kind of said the same thing, right? Stop using technology. Technology is the reason you're getting distracted. And so I actually did that, right? Like I, I, I did the, the digital detoxing and all that. And I still got distracted. Right? <laughs> you know, I, I would say, oh, there's that book on the bookcase that I, I've been meaning to read. Or let me just clean up my desk real quick. Or, oh, look, the trash needs to be taken out. And I would find every reason to still get distracted from what it was I said I was going so to do. It sounds to me like you realized the problem was actually not technology, but the problem was you. It's a big part of it. That's a, a very, very big part of it. Of course, there's, you know, there's what we call external triggers, the pings, dings, and rings in our outside environment that leads us off track. But studies actually find that that's only 10% of the time we get distracted. Do we get distracted because of an external trigger? So you're absolutely right, Jesse. 90% of the time, 90% of the time that we check our phone, that we get distracted, it's not because of the external triggers. It's because of the internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. That is the root cause of 90% of our distraction, 90% of our bad habits are spurred because of not what's going on outside of us, but what's happening inside of us. And I love this point here, and I wanna take a moment to, to, to reflect on uncomfortable emotional states. I, as a person, will do anything that I can to move myself away from discomfort. 
internally or externally. And frankly, I'd actually rather physical pain to the, the emotional pain of having to sit with discomfort, right? And so many of the habits that I realize that I have unconsciously adopted are habits that exist solely to move me away from the discomfort of doing hard things. But we humans, we're supposed to be uncomfortable from time to time, right? Absolutely. And, and and by the way, uh, you've just described everyone. I know you said, oh, me personally, that you escape from. This is why we do everything. And I think this is a really important point because many people still subscribe to this outdated notion of motivation being about carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Jeremy Bentham said this, Sigmund Freud said this. We've heard this again and again and again. That is totally wrong. <laughs> we now know that the reason we do anything and everything from a neurological perspective is just for one reason. And that is the desire to escape discomfort, right? That we know this to be true physiologically. If we go outside and it's cold, the brain says, ooh, this doesn't feel good. You should put on a coat. If we go back inside now, it's too hot. The brain says, oh, that's not comfortable. You should take your coat off. If you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, so you eat. And if you eat too much, the brain says, oh, nope, you're stuffed. You should stop. So that's physiological responses to discomfort. The same goes to our psychological responses. So when we feel... Lonely, we check Facebook. When we are bored, we check the news, stock prices, sports scores. When we're uncertain, we Google. So everything we do, everything we do, even pleasurable sensations, the desire to feel pleasure is about wanting, craving, lusting. Even those sensations, the pursuit of these pleasurable sensations is itself psychologically destabilizing. So this is a really important point. If everything that we do is about the desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management requires pain management. Time management requires pain management. That if we are not doing what we say we're going to do, if we're procrastinating, if we're getting distracted, if we have these bad habits, fundamentally where we need to start, which is not where most people start, most people start with whatever's in their hand. Oh, they blame the cigarette, they blame the phone, they blame the television, they blame whatever they're doing, rather than thinking to themselves, wait a minute, why am I being triggered to do this? What's the underlying sensation that I'm looking to get relief from. And so that's why the first step is to master the internal triggers before they become your master. I love thinking about um, time management as pain management. And it makes me think of this thing that I kind of figured out how to do on my own over the course of my early adulthood. And you actually captured it, named it, and put it in your book. And that is trick myself into telling myself that I only had to do something for a few minutes. You know, you really don't want to start that master's thesis of yours. That's fine. You only need to write it for 10 minutes and then you can do anything else. Why the heck does that work? Yeah, so it works for, for many, many reasons. And this is why I kind of rally against the, the leading time management technique that has, you know, we've all heard about to death, which is running your life on a to-do list. And uh, to-do lists, you know, harness this, this other uh, method, which is, you know, if I write things down on a list, I'll just do them right? And anybody who's actually used a to-do list knows it doesn't work, right? Like, and just to be very clear, I'm not against taking things out of your brain and putting them somewhere else, like putting them on a piece of paper in an app. That's a great idea. Getting stuff out of your head and putting it somewhere, that's a good idea. What I'm against is running your life on a to-do list. If you wake up in the morning and you look at your to-do list rather than looking at your calendar, you've already made a huge mistake, partially because of what, what you've identified here, that when you measure yourself by what did you finish? That's very difficult to predict. We have what we call the planning fallacy. And the planning fallacy says that on average, it takes you three times longer 
to finish something than you predict. So what that means is when you say, oh, I'm going to finish my master's thesis today or whatever the case might be, there's a very slim chance you will actually finish it in the amount of time you predict. The problem is that a to-do list doesn't take an account for that. So when you measure your life based on what you finished, how many cute little boxes did you check off, the chances that you will actually end your day and say, hey, I did it, look at me, I actually finished what I said I was gonna do, are very, very slim. And this begins to have a huge psychic toll. So when you get home at the end of the day and you look at that to-do list, which by the way, has no constraints, it's another big problem with to-do list that you can always add more to your to-do list. When items. you look at that massive, Exactly, right? There's no there's no bottom. There's no <laughs> there's no end to it. There's no constraint. So when you look at that to-do list at the end of the day and you say, "Geez, I, I still didn't do all these things." You begin to reinforce a self-image as someone who doesn't live with personal integrity. I said I was going to do all these things and I didn't do it. Loser. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, this begins to take a toll. You start to hear people saying things like, "Oh, I'm just no good at time management." "Ah, oh, I have a short attention span." They start making up all these harmful delusions around who they are somehow. And of course, now it's now it's over. They've lost the war because they conform to these beliefs about themselves. They think that, that somehow they're broken, but rather it's these crappy technique they're using that's broken. So what's a much better technique is what you're alluding to, which is called time boxing, where we say, I'm, I don't measure myself by what I finished. I'm not gonna measure myself by how many cute little boxes I ticked off. What I'm gonna do instead is to measure myself by, did I do what I said I'm going to do? for as long as I said I would without distraction. That's it. Notice I didn't say, what did I finish? It's about, did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Even if it's 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever, however amount of time you said in advance, you were going to do that thing without distraction. It turns out the kicker is that people who use that technique, people who just measure that, did I do what I said I'm going to do without distraction, they actually finish more they actually get more done than the people who run their life on to-do lists. Because they don't spend as much time going through the mental math of figuring out where they are on their to-do list and whether they've accomplished what and when they're going to start what and what really belongs where and maybe you should order it and then maybe you should reorder it. It sounds like you have personal experience no. with this one. <laughs> well, so what I love about the idea of time boxing is that it backs you into pursuing good habits without ever even needing to name the habits Mm. because it has to. It has to start with a values conversation, a very personal values conversation. What's important enough to you that you want to spend your time on? And time is limited. Time time is what you have, right? And so that forces you to to force rank what those things are going to be and assign where they belong in your boxes. And in order to do that, you've got to build the habits that will support that. Yeah, you have to make some trade-offs. Yeah, so so I have a philosophy that we should be generous with our money and stingy with our time, which is the exact opposite of how most people think about it, right? Like people are really stingy with their money, right? They clip coupons and they look for deals and they they split their checks when they go out for lunch with a friend of saving every minute, you know, every, every little penny. But you can always make more money. You can always make more money. You cannot make more time. You still get the same 24 hours in a day no matter how much money you make. So... That is what we should be stingy with, right? We should be stingy with our time. If, if I am going to go out to lunch with you, if I'm going to do this interview, or if I'm going to do whatever it is that I'm going to spend time with somebody, I'm going to be fully present, right? Because that, that time we spend, it, it, you can't make more of it. Whereas the money you can always make more of. And so it's, it's incredibly important to turn your values into time, turning your values into time. Because when you look at your calendar, when you use this time boxing technique, it forces you, as you say, to make these trade-offs. 
because there are only so many hours in a day. So by looking at your values, and values, I define values as the attributes of the person you want to become. So you have to ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time? How much time would I spend on myself? You have to decide your values. How many of us are parents and we tell our children, oh, you have to have a bedtime, but we're hypocrites. How many of us have a bedtime, <laughs> right? So we end up the evening scrolling and scrolling. We don't get to bed, even though we've heard to death about how important sleep is. Do we schedule it? Do we schedule time with our friends? We are suffering through a loneliness epidemic in our country because people don't have those regular occasions like past generations did, whether it was the church group or Kiwanis Club or the bowling league. We don't have those regular occasions with our friends. The amazing thing is that we can do it online these days, but we need to schedule it. We need to plan that time. And then finally, with our work, this is where people get into a lot of trouble. A lot of us are running around all day doing what we call reactive work. Reactive work is reacting to the emails, reacting to the notifications, reacting to the meetings or whatever. That's reactive work. But what we have to schedule in our day is the reflective work. Reflective work is where the real work gets done. The planning, the strategizing, the thinking can only be done without distraction. And if we don't plan that time and fiercely protect it, somebody's going to take it away from us. And unfortunately, many people like to run around all day being told what to do, reacting to stuff, right? They make this excuse, oh, I'm so busy. I don't have time to, to, to really think and do anything. Well, it's because they really enjoy not having to sit down and think, wait, well, how should I spend my time? So they let themselves be pulled around reacting to all these uh, external triggers that pull them from one thing to the next, as opposed to planning just some time in their day. And I don't care if it's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour to say, wait a minute, what do I need to work on here? Let me actually plan some time to actually think. That's not easy, but it's essential that we make that time in our day because if we don't, we'll run real fast in the wrong direction. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, Nir's gonna give us a whole process for becoming better at the stuff that matters to us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. I let Nier know that even when I time block, I feel like I get distracted. I offered up the Pomodoro technique as a possible solve. You know, we've talked about it here sometimes. You set the timer and you work on it for a few minutes, then you do something else. But he basically told me it was a gimmick. There's no magic solve. It took him five years, the whole time he was writing his book, to figure out what really matters and what really works. And he says that it's these four techniques. What I came down with, the essential uh, components of what it takes to be indistractable, what it takes to follow through on whatever it is you want to do, is to start with those internal triggers. That's step number one. You have to have techniques, you have to have arrows in your quiver ready to go that when you don't feel like doing something, you know what to do about that. I mean, that's the number one reason we fail. If you think about it, why do we not accomplish our goals, right? What's the number one reason people don't accomplish their goals? It's very simple. They quit. They quit. The number one source of failure is quitting, right? So we have to know how do we persevere? And the number one reason we quit is because we don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like exercising today. I don't feel like eating right. I don't feel like not drinking. I don't feel like doing that work right now. I don't feel like it. 
That's the problem. That's the number one source of why we get distracted, why we go off track, even when we know what to do. It used to be maybe our grandparents' generation could say, well, I don't know, okay? I don't have access to the information to tell me what to do. We no longer have that excuse. You can just Google it, right? Like, who doesn't know how to do these things? We know what to do. We just don't do it. So, so the idea here is how do we get out of our own way? What do we do with those uncomfortable sensations that when they rear their ugly heads, loneliness, boredom, fatigue, stress, anxiety, what will we do when we face those sensations? That's step number one. Not enough though. Step number two is to make time for traction. So this is about putting time in your calendar for whatever it is you want to do. Planning in advance, the day before, how you will spend your time. Why is this so important? Because we cannot call something a distraction unless we know what it distracted us from. So if you have a big open calendar, you cannot say you got distracted because what did you get distracted from? <laughs> Nothing was planned. You have to decide in advance what you will do with your time or somebody's gonna plan it for you. The news, Twitter, your kids, your boss, somebody's gonna decide how you will spend your time and attention unless you decide in advance for yourself. That's step number two. Step number three is hacking back the external triggers. So this is where we get down to brass tacks of all the pings, dings, and rings in our environment that can lead us off track. It used to be the number one source of distraction in the workplace was in fact other people. When we do surveys, it's not our technology that distracts us in the workplace. It's our boss saying, hey, can I get that TPS report? Or your colleague saying, hey, can we talk about this bit of office gossip? But now many of us, you know, we're not working in offices anymore. Now we're working at home. Well, now it's our kids that are distracting us. Well, there's some simple things you can do to hack back all of those distractions. And then finally, the last step, which is just as critical, is about preventing distraction with pacts. A pact is a pre-commitment device. It's when we decide in advance what we will do when those other three techniques fail. This is a promise we're making with ourselves, with the technology. Ironically enough, we can actually use technology to prevent us from getting distracted by technology. When we implement that last line of defense and, and along with those other three techniques, this is it. This is how we do it. If you just do one or the other piecemeal, it tends to fall apart. But if you do one small thing from each of these four key strategies, mastering internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers and prevent distraction with packs, anybody can become indistractable. That is a, that's a surefire recipe for how to, how to become indistractable, but in the process, how to take back the agency that you have over your time, how to understand that you have that agency over your time. I'm glad you said that word agency. This is a really, really big deal because so many of us, and I used to do this, you know, we shoot ourselves in the foot with these notions of like what kind of person we are right? <laughs> or what our capabilities are. And so what you said in terms of believing in your personal agency is incredibly important. Unfortunately, we have so many myths flying around these days that, oh, we're all getting addicted to technology and it's hijacking our brains and there's nothing we can do about it. Ugh, it's such unscientific nonsense that is actively harming people. Because when you believe there's nothing that can be done, guess what you do? nothing, <laughs> right? So it's it really does start with this belief in your own agency, super important. So Nira, now that you have spent five years exploring these ideas, have you become a master yourself? Well, I, I will tell you, there is no area of my life that hasn't benefited by my ability to be indistractable. Uh, but let me, let me just define what that is because I made up the word indistractable, right? It's a, it's a new word. So becoming indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. That's impossible. I still get distracted from time to time. But becoming indistractable means you are as honest with yourself as you are with others. It means that you, you strive to do what you say you're going to do. Now, 
The difference between a person who is distractible and someone who is indistractable is that an indistractable person understands why they got distracted and does something about it. So Poelo Coelho has a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So how much are we going to complain about these bad habits, about getting distracted? Oh, Facebook did this and the news did that and I, my kids did that. How many times can we say this before we do something about it? A distracted person keeps getting distracted by the same thing again and again. They keep making the same mistakes. They are deciding to be distractible. An indistractable person says, okay, I see what you did there, distraction. Okay, I recognize it. And I'm going to do something about it now to prevent getting distracted from it in the future. And so every area of my life, my relationship with my daughter is better than ever because I am fully present with her as opposed to, you know, having my brain on work or checking my phone. I am fully present when I'm with her. My relationship with my wife is better. My relationship with my friends is better uh, because I am fully present. Uh, at work, I'm more productive than ever before because I can do whatever it is I say I'm going to do with my time and attention. My physical health is better. I'm 43 years old. And I'm kind of embarrassed, but also proud. I have six pack abs, not because I'm super athletic, but because I exercise consistently when I say I will. I'm, I'm not super athletic at all. I just consistently do what I say I'm going to do. And, wait, wait, stop uh, there that a second, has been life changing. Let's, let's just use that as yeah. an example. Um, I, okay, so I understand that you, perhaps you set aside time to exercise, you exercise for a while. Is there a point at which it just goes on autopilot? It's no longer hard to do. It's no longer something that you don't feel like doing some days. Is there a point at no. which you've got it? No, no. So this is a really important point uh, that there's a big distinction and a misunderstanding between what kind of behaviors can and cannot become habits. And I, I think in a way we've reached peak habit. We talk about habits too much. Why do I say that? Because not every behavior can become a habit. You see, many people, when they talk about habits, what they are really saying is, there's some kind of behavior I want to have done, but I don't really want to do it, right? I want to have exercise. I want to have written that book. I want to have done whatever it is, but I don't really want to do it because it sucks. It's hard. It's not fun. So can't I just make it into a habit? And therefore, when I make it into a habit, it'll be on autopilot and then I don't have to think about it anymore. Well, that's not how habits work. Because remember, let's go back to where we first started the conversation. What is a habit? A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. If you want to get better at something, you have to put in conscious thought. So a habit is the antithesis of, you know, the 10,000 hour rule idea where deliberate, it's called deliberate practice. Deliberate practice, if you look at the research, the whole stuff about the 10,000 hour rule, that stuff was not done on habit. Deliberate practice, you have to hyper-focus on what you're doing. Like the studies around, you know, violinists who put in their 10,000 hours to become masters at, at, at playing the violin, they were really thinking about what they were doing. They were catching every little mistake. They were hyper-focused, the opposite, the antithesis of doing a behavior with little or no conscious thought. So there are many behaviors which will never, ever become habits. And I think the self-help industry has, has kind of done us a disservice because what happens is people say, oh, I want to make something a habit. I want to exercise habit, for example. And then, you know, they follow the, 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 the steps to creating a habit. And then 30 days later, 45 days later, whatever magic number we think is going to suddenly, it's going to become a habit, never comes. It still sucks, right? Exercise is still really hard. It's not fun for me. It's sweaty. It's gross. All I want, like, I'd rather be doing something else. But that, that, that ideal that, oh, it should be easy. It should be effortless. Why isn't it on autopilot yet? 
this is where people really get into trouble because they don't blame the bad advice that told them to create the habit. They blame themselves. They think, oh, I must I'm be broken. I'm a bad person. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a bad person. Yeah. I have I have low willpower, low self-control. No, you just use the wrong tool for the job. So some behaviors will never become habits. They will stay what we call routines. A routine is a series of behaviors frequently repeated. So exercise, for me at least, if you want to get better at something. Now, for example, taking a walk, that can be a habit. If you can take a walk for a period of time with little or no conscious thought, sure, that could be an exercise habit. But for me, going to the gym and working hard, that is not a habit. That requires conscious thought. Writing, you know, I've written two bestsellers, thousands of articles. It's never become easy. It is hard work to write because I can't do it with little or no conscious thought. So I don't even try and make it into a habit. It will always stay a routine. So the, 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 the idea here is when something can become a habit, sure, make it a habit, do it with little or no conscious thought. But if it can't become a habit, if it's something that, that does require deliberate practice, you want to lean into the discomfort. You want to know what to do when it is hard, when you want to quit, when it is uncomfortable, what will you do back to those internal triggers to make sure you don't go off track? In tandem with that, I always think about the most important piece of that journey as the thing that happens after you go off track. And the most important thing that will happen in your life is the thing that you do next as a result of that information. Amen. That is so true. There's this terrible advice around visioning that if we want to accomplish our goals, you need to have a vision, make a vision board, just vision it and it'll come to you. Don't do that. Terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> that does not work. Studies have found that there's a right way and a wrong way to vision something. And in fact, the right way to vision something is not to envision the outcome. In fact, that is actively harmful, actively harmful. When you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I, you know, let me vision what it will be like to be financially free, how great that will be. You actually begin to reward your brain just with the thought. And that can make you less motivated to go out and actually get the thing you desire. The right kind of visioning is to envision what you will do when you are tempted to go off track. What will you say? What will you do? That is the right type of visioning experiment, to envision what you will do when you are tempted to slip off track. And then after you fall off track, to your point, one of the best techniques you can use is self-compassion. Because you're absolutely right, all of us, all of us, will fail from time to time on the track to becoming indistractable, on the track to breaking these bad habits. So. Studies find that one of the best things we can do is to offer ourselves self-compassion, that people who are more self-compassionate are much more likely to reach their long-term goals. And the cool thing is, is that becoming self-compassionate is actually pretty easy. All we have to do is to talk to ourselves the way we would talk to a good friend. That many of us have this internal dialogue where we beat each other up, right? We are our own bullies. We talk to ourselves in a way that we would never actually verbalize out loud to someone we loved. Well, we're the most important people in our lives. Why do we talk to ourselves this way? So if we can train ourselves, if we can learn to talk to ourselves in the third person, like someone would talk to a good friend, turns out that's an incredibly effective way to help us get back on track. That was Nir Eyal. Check out his latest book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Now this week for our assignment, I want you to journal again. Set the timer for 15 minutes. I love a timer for this. Open to a fresh page of paper and write two questions at the top. The first, what's one new habit you've adopted during the pandemic that you plan to carry forward? Or if you can't think of anything, then what is one habit you aspire to build? 
Now, once you identify that habit, I want you to write about what you plan to do and who you plan to be to live with it or without it. And then join us for office hours on Wednesday. We'll discuss it. We'll see you at 3 p.m. Eastern as usual. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email hellomonday at linkedin.com. And Sarah, Michaela, and I are going to be doing this exercise too. And we look forward to comparing notes. Now join us next week as we explore our fifth big question in the reopening series. We'll be talking about planning long into the future this time, and we've got a delightful guest. He's an actor, a writer, an all-around character, Matthew McConaughey. And our conversation was pretty special. I mean, I was recording it in Tupelo, Mississippi, where we spend a lot of time. And Mississippi's a pretty special place for Matthew, too. He had one of his earliest professional successes there, in the movie A Time to Kill. He talks a lot about how that role came to be. But more important, he talks about how we dream and conspire and plan for a future that we can delight in. And that's exactly where we want to be right now. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with a friend. And as always, your ratings and reviews help us reach more listeners. So thanks. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm with help from Taisha Henry. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Oriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer, Samantha Roberson, Carrington, York, and Victoria Taylor have no bad habits that I can see. I'm sorry to say that this is Samantha and Carrington's last episode with us. We will miss you. Keep listening to us. Keep in touch. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. The show's back next Monday. Thanks for listening.